What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Rising Sun Podcast. I'm Dean Howell. Hey, listen, guys, I'm not even going to get into sponsors or partners or friends of the show today because I, I really just want to jump to the episode. I'm blessed and was lucky enough to have Tate Fletcher on. If you don't know who Tate is, um, he's an actor and an executive. So you're probably familiar with Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, Breaking Bad, and Westworld, but also most recently on The Mandalorian. Um, so fought in the UFC. He was on season three of the ultimate fighter. Uh, again, just, um, an awesome, awesome human being. And I think that you guys are really going to enjoy listening to his perspective on, on life and, and the conversation that we had cause it went pretty fucking deep, man. So, um, without further ado and without boring you with the sound of my voice, um, Tate Fletcher. What's going on, Tate? How you doing, man? Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Good to be here, man. Thanks, Dean. Right on. So you're on the Mountain Standard Time. Where, where are you exactly? I'm. I don't even know, man. I'm up in the mountains of Santa Fe, New Mexico. New Mexico, nice. Yeah, man. we're about uh, seven thousand feet, something like that, and uh, it's ninety-five degrees right now, and uh, blistering, and we're waiting around the monsoons to come. So 95 during the day, does it get pretty cool at night still, like in the summer, or is it still nope. pretty hot? It stays, uh, get down to maybe 75 last night. Okay. So like hoodie, maybe, maybe a hoodie if, if you feel it's like it. Yeah. yeah. It's still hot. Yeah. <laughs> right on, man. So New Mexico, how'd you, how'd you find yourself in New Mexico? Originally I came out here in 91 and, uh, there was a great books program at, at a college called St. John's which kind of studies classical literature of uh, the Western hemisphere from kind of beginning of Greek and uh, follows it through to early Americana, like uh, Thomas Paine kind of novelists and people like that. And uh, that, that's what originally brought me out here. So you've been there for a while. Then. Yeah. Yeah. On and off, you know, I moved out, I was up in Portland for about six months and then uh, went back to Michigan and, and uh, stayed there for a little while in like, I don't know, 96, 97, somewhere like that. And then I moved back out here uh, nice. after that, shortly after that. And I've been here nice, kind of on and off since then. On and off being, you know, whenever work calls, I'm somewhere else. And I kept right. a place in Los Angeles for a lot of years um, and kind of bounced back and forth uh, just because of the film business and, and all that. And um, But then I've been here now regularly since like 2020 when, when everything kind of tipped off. I had a mm -hmm. bad brain injury in 2019, and uh, when things started to get loud and chaotic kind of around Los Angeles, I was like, I don't think that I want to be here for this, and I came back up to the mountains and just kind of healed up here. I love it. So I want to get I want to get to that, man. Um, so I kind of always kick my, my episodes off like this, Tate. Um, I'm, I don't know, man. Like, I'm one of the most curious people about people that, that I know, um, I'm sure there's lots of us out there, but I just, I'm just always curious about where, where you started. Right. So I always ask about your origin story. Like, how'd you grow up? Where are you from? Like, what was, you know, what was your family situation like? Because I just feel like that informs so much about, you know, the older we get, but also like it there without fail, all, however many people I've talked to at this point, like, their childhood does not translate to what, who they are now necessarily. Like there's something that from their, their childhood, their adolescence, their high school, college that they had to overcome to become the person that they are now. Right. So 
if, if you don't mind, man, I'd love for you to share with us kind of like the Tate Fletcher origin story. I grew up up in northern Michigan, up on the shore of Lake Huron, a town called Alpena. And, um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that it dictates everything who you are. I think that um, – I wonder if there's – I mean, there's a conversation out there where you could make an argument that people can't buck what they were mm. in as much as you've got – imprints that happen when you're young and those things kind of dictate what your road is whether you know it or not i think and uh and so inside of that i think i kind of became a, a protector and a, a look towards a calling that was outside of what the norm was um i saw a lot of people that would jump on a bandwagon and, and the bandwagon always looked sour to me uh whether that was uh religion or or uh, different parts of community or whatever. Um, and so I was kind of always an individualist in that way and, and uh, an underdog shooter and, and looking for um, ways to protect those that didn't have a voice. And, uh, and I think that comes from probably early traumas in my life. <laughs> I, I think that, you know, when I look at most fighters of any kind, you know, and you start to really dig in if you can get honest looks and you can get past blind spots about your life. It's kind of obvious of why you became how you became. Um, and yeah, there's things that you may, maybe you transcend and do other things. But I think that that conversation is more like there's things that are expected of you and there's things that your people maybe expect of you. And uh, and whether that's changing your diet or changing your life, you've got to buck that system because no matter what, if anybody's ever tried to do any kind of formulative change in their life, they've come against resistance from people that are closest to them. And, you know, I mean, if you're an alcoholic and you're trying not to drink and people be like, we can just drink one. What? You know, the same people that are like, why are you drinking? Like, I mean, you, why do you drink like that? You shouldn't drink like those same people will go to destroy your life without thinking that they are. Right. So there's those kinds of ways in which you got to defend yourself against old ideas, maybe, or something like that. But, um, yeah, my, my, my childhood is, uh, you know, my, my, uh, my mom lives out here now with me. Uh, her and my pops got split up when maybe like 29 years ago or something like that. Right. And uh, I just got back from Michigan, went and saw him. Um, and he's 79 years old. And, and, and those are relationships, you know, as far as life goes and all that, you know, it's, I mean, me and my dad were uh, separated for a long time and, and uh, in, in a lot of different ways. And, um, and I think that everything in my life now has come back to like, how do you heal all those imprints of your life uh, before people go, you know? Um, and that's kind of been what the second half of my life has been about, you know? Dude told me a long time ago, he goes, you know, you, you grow up and you kind of got your back against the wall and your fists up and you're like fucking just taking life on as it comes. Yep. And that's a perspective to take. That's a position, right? That, a lot of people understand and all that, and it works for a while. I think all these things become uh, survival tools, right? Uh, but he says, I'd love you to consider that the only people you got to get even with are folks that have helped you, and it'll change the perspective of your whole life, you know? And and it did. And, um, and so that's kind of like where I like to put my focus at, is like, how do I, how do I pay back those folks that helped me when I was nothing, when I wasn't a good bet? And, and a lot of that is just, you know, reaching out behind you and how do you help the guy coming behind you? 
how do you, you know, if you got some, some, some leverage, you know, how, how can you be helpful to those that are in need? Um, cause I think that, that, you know, even folks you find most distasteful, the only thing about them is that, is their traumas, their ways that they're dealing with their life is, is a thing that butts up against yours in some way. And if they were well, there would be no problem. And so, you know, when I think about people like that, I get a more allowance for folks and I get more in the position of, uh, where maybe I could be a, a, a ear that could listen and maybe a, a guidepost yeah. that can point a different direction. Maybe. Yeah. Um, Let me ask you this Tate. So this is, man, this is why I want to talk to you, right? Because I just already am thinking about some things that I want to hear your insight on. And one of them is like, you know, if you talk about those people that you're close to, whether it's your father and, you know, you were estranged for a while, same thing for me for several years after the divorce. And then we ended up like getting real close. And unfortunately he passed a couple of years ago. He was 89 though, lived a full life. Right on. But like, sometimes like, like, let's say with my mother, I've been on active duty in the military now for 22 years and I've spent most of it in Japan. And I have this deep like yearning as I see this military career coming to an end to like go home and like make sure that I'm there with her for the rest of the time. And it's not even a guilt thing. It's like, I, I want to be there, but there's this other part of me that's like, I've become this person over the last 22 years. And like, I go back to being the guy that was 21 that joined the military. When I go back home, you know, that's, that's who they know. I've been gone for so long. And so like, there's, it's kind of juxtaposed, right? Like I want to, I want to make sure that I'm, that I'm close to those people, by the way, yeah, is there trauma there? I mean, I had a good life, man. You know, I, I can't complain. I was poor, but whatever. Like I had good parents. No, nobody gets out of the motherfucker on scale. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. But, um, but I guess my question is like, how do you, do you manage like, um, knowing who you are and remembering who you were and merging those, those two things. Does that make sense? Totally. A hundred percent. I think that, I mean, it's one of those things where they're like, you know, there's all those old kind of parables about you got to kill your father to become a man. Right. right. And, and that kind of a thing. And well, what does that mean? Does that mean I go and cut throats? Like, obviously yeah. not. You know what I mean? Um, but I've got to kill the ideas of who, where, who am I in a shadow of or something like that? Of What are these preconceived ideas about who I am or supposed to be? And, you know, I think I, I don't have any, I mean, I sure don't have any answers to any questions except like for my, my experience is what I can give. And, and, um, and I think you, you know, I need, I needed to leave, you know, just, I think most people, I think it's the healthiest thing you could do is to leave the place that you grew up. Right. Um, yep. Especially when you're a young man, when you're in your teens and twenties to go somewhere else and have to rely on other people that are strangers and, it kind of cuts out that sense about like uh, territory and things like that. And, 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 and uh, the inability to go and learn how to cohabitate and cooperate with other people. Um, you can see it in folks and you can see it in folks that don't do it. They're like, where are you from? What are you doing in here? You know what I mean? It's like, you right. know, you can see it in young men everywhere of how it gets expressed in different ways. And so, you know, for me going out and going to become myself where somebody where nobody knew me was really important because it's trying to have a new life. And, and, uh, when you want to change your life, it's very hard if you've uh, made an impact as somebody else, right? And you're trying to walk different. It takes years for that to happen. And I think that that's what happened with me and my father is that it took years for him to believe in that change. And he had to see it reflected from other people going, God, you see what Tate's up to now? And, right. and all of that. And, and there's a different kind of allowance that happened inside of that. So I would, I would consider that like 
you literally can't be that kid that was 21, 22 years old that left for the military. You know what I mean? And, and what you've done, I think when you do go home, when I go home, it's like, it's like a warrior coming back from, from, uh, uh, you know, touring in, in East Asia or whatever. And they come back to their, their camp and they're like, you know, the Mongols are like, well, what was it like? Or what was it? You know what I mean? And it's, <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah. you know, you, you've lived a different life. And I think that it goes to, I don't know that there's an Einstein quote I've been kicking around lately that goes, uh, the greatest delusion of humanity is that there's more than one of us. Mm. And that idea of this singular soul that we're all interconnected by this, this tether, maybe the Catholics, maybe the Christians call it like the Holy spirit or something like that. My Buddhist friend, the surfer and he, he talks about the waves and he goes i'm all 100 percent god i know i know all about that feeling there's right? nothing like just it. like yeah. the wave is 100 percent water right but it ain't all the water that there is there, there's something massive about the you know the the totality of it and that's where the power is and maybe that's what this god field is or what i would think of as a higher powers is all of these souls in, in this unified structure Maybe that's what it is. I'm not sure. It's a mystery I can't I can't put a name to. But I think that when we come home in that way, people are like, How, wh where were your feet? What was that like? You know what I mean? And we grow in yeah. that way. And we break off those old kind of shells of who we were to become who we're going to be. And, and I think the biggest thing about experience is that we go out and we help guys behind us. We, we, we help ring the bell, as it were, of like, what, what it looks like and what's safe, what's not safe. And what, what, here's my route. Here's what I wish I'd have done. And, and there's those guys that do that. They go out and do that. And then there's, there's other people that are like, for whatever reason, I had to play it safe. And man, I took the job as the accountant or I'm the grocer down the road or whatever. Cause my dad was doing it and then they didn't want to lose the shop. <laughs> I mean, my dad, that's his story. You know what I mean? His dad got a stroke and he had to come back and take care of the family business. What is he going to do? You know, his dad put him through college and all that. He's going to answer the call. And so uh, not that it's good or bad or anything, but in that way, I think we all hold each other down. I hope that there's a cooperation between us instead of this fierce competition. I think, uh, you know, the best way I ever heard it is, I mean, I relate to everything through violence in a way. I mean, it's a lot of how I grew right. up and it's a lot of like what, form me with discipline through mixed martial arts and through, I fought with a group called the dog brothers, which was a stick fighting group back in the day. And, uh, they had a credo that said higher consciousness through harder contact. You got to yeah. really understand which self it is you're defending when you got a stick whizzing by your head, you know? Right. And, yep. and the idea being that we're going to come and we're going to crash against each other. You know, it was like being at a dance, like, Hey, do you want to fight next? And right. you, you know, you just ask somebody to be your next dance partner. Then you go out in the middle of the park and, and there's people all surrounded drinking beers, watching you. And, and there's like 15 or 20 of us that are there to fight. And, and uh, we're not there out of malice or anything like that. We're there to hone the tribe so that we all right. get a little better and we all can yeah. grow a little bit. Right. Yeah. There's a guy that was yeah. so good that everybody thought he was doing pretty good against him. It's like right. that kind of a feeling, right? He would fight to whatever level you were at and be just above your edge so you could rise, you know? And, mm. I think that's the point of a society. And uh, and so I think that's the thing about going out and coming home. I think that's a thing that can be offered. And, and I also think that's the thing that's getting corroded in society. I think the powers that be know that and they want to put people at odds with each other. And I, I think that communication and 
that kind of kindness of like, well, why is violence important? Well, it's important because if I'm good at it, I don't have to manifest it. Right. It's, right. it's, it's already known. And if I know right. that that's a trump card that I can pull, I'm not afraid of it either. And I can protect the folks around me. And yeah. so I think this thing about being a good citizen is that is traveling, is going out, is understanding literature and mythology and, and being, uh, being able to use your body in a physical way that's helpful to your community, you know? Yeah. And I think all that stuff is, is what you're going to bring home, you know? And you'll bring home a duty to your blood of like, you know, you're going to walk somebody home and fuck, man, there's nothing more, more honorable than that. Yeah. I think there's something real romantic about it. And I trust me, I, I think about it a lot and, you know, um, just this idea, I mean, you know, everybody's seen Gladiator, right? And he, he's home and he's touching the wheat in the fields and he, he was dead, but he had returned home. That was yeah. a symbolism, right? And I think there's something to that, man. Like, um, you know, but but there's this kind of like, until you, like, I, I know how good I am at certain things. I have a skill set. Uh, it's mainly leadership. You put me in front of 10 or a thousand people and you want to get some shit done, like, I'm I'm your guy, right? which is a very valuable skill set, but um, I kind of want to be like Thanos in the fucking garden, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I kind of want to like just chill, grow a garden, yeah. have some goats um, and influence the people that, you know, that are around me. Right. Yeah. Like um, I don't need this huge kind of like um, envelope of, of influence once I'm done with this. Cause I've had that for 20 years, you know? And so it, it just, it's just one of those things that I kind of work through and I talk to anybody that I can to uh, to to shed some light on it, right? I will I say this though. It, like it reminds me. Of, go ahead. Go ahead. So I've lived in Japan for twenty plus years. Yeah. And so I've really absorbed this culture, and um, it's it's the most respectful and orderly and harmonious culture I've ever seen. I've been everywhere in Southeast Asia. I mean, you name it, from Thailand to Australia and. Malaysia and Hong Kong and everywhere in between. Um, and there's something about this Japanese culture that everybody is willing to lend a helping hand, but there's this social contract that I think is rooted in B Buddhist faith, but also Shinto, which was their, their earlier religion. And, um, and so like, it's like you were, were talking about my ability to take that experience and bring it back home is something I, I look forward to, but also, you know, it kind of, it kind of makes you nervous. It's like sure. it challenges that Judeo Christian kind of way of looking at things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think it's the, I mean, you know, when you're fractured or you're at a crossroads, there's a reductive quality to that. And things aren't in your, maybe you reduce just to your breath because you're injured so badly. And mm. that's all you got is to be able to watch one breath go out and another breath come in. And that's all you've got. And maybe there's just pain besides that, whatever. Inability to participate. But you can grow from there. There's a place to go from there. And and this thing about uh, being being broken in whatever way, whether it's brokenhearted, whether it's I lost a family member, um, whether it's my, my job, I aged out of my job, right? You're a fighter. You can only do that so long. You're a football player. You're like, And it's cold in the dark when the lights go out. Who are you now? And there's that thing about a man. It's like when you come of age, well, who are you now? 
and you're like, well, I'm something, you know, and you don't have any footprints behind you, you got no experience, you know, and you know it, but God damn it, you're trying to stand up straight, you know, and you're trying to, you know, you're hoping you choose the right course and all, but those parts of your life pass, right? You And you become something, you become whatever, right. however you're walking. And, um, you know, the next part of your life, you'll become another thing and it'll be scary because the other thing I'm used to, I'm used to being a leader. I'm used to, you know, you're used to who you are now. And so who knows what that next thing is? And right. for me, for me, whenever I've tried to force anything, I step on toes, you know, whether it's a business or whatever, I've been overly ambitious and I'm, I'm and I'm pushing things around. And if only, man, then this is better for everybody. And can't you see? And I cause chaos. Right. I cause chaos, man. <laughs> when I'm over here preaching yeah. about cohesion, right? Right. <sighs> And whether that's in matters, the heart or business or whatever. And so I got to, you know, what, what's the point of having faith? Why would I have to, why would I look towards that? Well, because when I push it around, I get, I get stinky results. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I can get a job done, but if the stakes aren't high and the consequences aren't there where it really needs to happen, is it worth the rub? People are just trying to live. And so I've been last couple of years anyway, I've been trying to, you know, being this thing of the unfold and going, you know, God, universe, whatever. Let me let you let this unfold because you'll unfold it better than I will. And yeah. if I choose something, I'll probably get that. I think that's how the universe works. But I'll rob myself of all the infinite possibility of what the beauty of it could be by choosing A, B, or C, right? And if I just live in the unfold and I can be present, it's like the Taoists would talk about that. Those guys, someone would live to 120, 130 years old. And they, they'd go, they, they'd ask them, how, how do you do that? And, you know, what, what is, what is this about? And uh, they talk about, they, they live in the infinity of the moment, right? Oh, this endless moment. Beautiful. And so how do I get into that and just let it unfold and trust, you know, and please God, give me the legs to carry it tomorrow, whatever the weight is. Yeah, and I think it's like that. I, I mean, you know, the, my problem with Christianity, or I don't want to even say a problem, but a lot of the things come up, and 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 I think everybody wants to know the answer. Everybody wants the outcome. I asked this old dude, this teacher of mine, and I said, "Man, you got to know the answer to that, Michael. What do you think?" And he goes, "Tate, whenever I got an answer, now I got ground I got to defend." People want to push into that, right? Because I got questions, and the world opens up. And I thought, man, that's a nice position to take. And I think there's different times in your life that you got to take different positions. There's a lot of times where you got to have a firm answer and you got to have Dean got to come up against me and we're going to butt heads and we're going to find out about it. And maybe right. we'll get a better answer out of that. And I think that's what happens when, when that happens a lot of the time. But I think that's certain parts of life and that's for certain problems. And so this thing about a faith and letting it unfold of like, you know, right now we're in a writer's strike and uh, we're in a, a, a union strike in, in my business. and um, and everybody's like, oh, you're striking. And I'm like, no, I'm just part of a thing that's, you know, striking. And it looks like pageantry yeah. to me, you know, a lot. Right. Of it. And, yeah. and also it looks like you're trying to, you know, a lot of it's about AI and stuff. And I'm like, you're trying to put a genie back in a bottle. And that it's a wrap. Like, it's what it is, you know. But, you know, so then the question a friend of mine says, well, what, what are you going to do next? What happens? And I go, I don't know. But the fact is, is that every road that I've been on, I've been taken care of. If I really get honest about it and reductive about it, I've been fed and I've been clothed and I got a roof over my head. 
And so I just want to be useful to those around me. And if that's my position, that'll come up. The next thing that I'm supposed to do will come up. And I don't have to worry about that. And, and, and that takes a lot of weight off of me. You know, I don't need to conspire to make this thing work. Or, man, I'm just here to be useful to folks. And mm. however that looks uh, is how it looks, you know. I mean, my dad's 79 years old right now. And we went out um, for the last five days. And we're building roads in the woods at, at hunting camp. And dragging 10 foot logs out. He's got, a, he's on the front end loader. He's picking them up. We're loading them up and I'm on, I mean, and, and we're doing that. We go out, shoot clay pigeons. We, you know, he hits 96 out of a hundred. Uh, <laughs> and then, and then he teaches sailing to kids. And so he's, there's all these little boats that the city has and he's got 15, 20 kids that are out there. And we go set a course and, and these kids are sailing. They're 13, 14 years old, skipper in these boats. Yeah. And it's like, I look at that man. And I look at, you know, for anything that I ever had that I was like rubbed wrong about my dad, it's like he showed me how to live in a life of service and a life of kindness and utility. And if it didn't have function or performance, he wasn't into it, you know, but mm -hmm. if it did, man, he's he's about that. And, and let's look into that more. And let's see how we can get more juice for the squeeze. And I'd like to be that, you know, I'd like to be that for, for whatever my community is. And, and so that's where I'm trying to walk in it with. And, and I think that, you know, for a guy like you, that'll be a thing that's just self-evident. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you come up, you're so useful. You've got so many skill sets that it, it goes into that. I think it was in Iceland or somewhere back, like the Vikings, when they would have war, you know, they'd have a war leader. Right. And then after the war, they would exile that dude and yeah. put him like 20 <laughs> miles outside of town, go live yeah. on the farm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Because we don't need a war leader in a time. That's not a good leader to have at that time, that's right. right? That's right. And uh, and also it's, it's like old, the natural way. Adage, right? That old adage, I'd rather be, you know, um, I'd rather be a warrior in a garden than a yeah. gardener in, in a war zone, right? It's, yeah. I mean, it's the truth, you know? Yeah. And it's great yeah. to have the ability to pick up the call for either way, you know, right. or something, you know, you're, you're an autonomous man. You know, right. you're as free as a man can be in that in that regard. I was reading a yeah. thing the other day about somebody was talking about they're walking through Koreatown and they're taking pictures for some project they're doing or whatever. And they're like, and then somebody that we can, we're sure is a gangbang or rides up on a bike. Give me your camera. What are you doing here? Get out of here. Da, 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 and all this stuff. And then talks about them kind of stalking them as they go all the way home mm -hmm. and all that. And and what do you think I should should do? And I was like, you should learn how to stand up for yourself. I mean, there you, go. you know what I mean? It's like, were you never on a playground? And where did you think somebody was going to come and save you? And so I think that's the biggest thing I think that, you know, for guys like us to show people down the road is like, man, if you want to be a free person, because that looks different now, yeah, right? We're from the skin up. world. Well, if you're in the digital world, it looks like you should call up whomever to come and help you because that's what they're telling you. And they're telling you if somebody hurts your feelings, you should be able to take their job away. And you should be, you know, and I'll, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's an amazing softening of the character of humans and yeah. uh, in, in a way that isn't sustainable. And so to listen to those messages, which abound is dangerous. Yeah. And I think it's good to offer another voice. And now I'll say that when I was a kid too, man, like I said, common people that were just doing common shit that were the common mob that would jump on a bad idea and, and run with it. I was never into yeah, and still the same now, you know, and I would say to anybody, just strive to be uncommon. It's easy. It's yeah. easy. 
I was having this conversation with my daughter last night. We were sitting on the back porch, just um, having a conversation. Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, however you look at it, that conversation went toward potential conflict with China, what that would look like. How, will we evacuate them? Where are we going to live? You'll be in Texas. And like, I'll tell you that story to kind of get to this point that like we had the conversation about like, you have to be able to defend yourself. If things go really sideways, don't worry, I've got a plan, but it's not going to be easy. And let me explain to you some of these things that will, are going to challenge you because, you know, I'll say this, like I've raised my kids to be, you know, uh, to be able to take care of themselves, three girls, three beautiful girls, but they don't take shit from nobody. Right. And, um, but this idea of like really truly having to defend yourself, yeah. uh, in a time of, of like conflict or crisis, I think a lot of people don't, don't like they call us, you know, they call you a prepper or this, that, and the third thing, but it's like, no, like that's kind of like a basic human thing is that you're able to to take care of yourself, whether that's you know, food, defense, whatever, you know, I used to work in clubs back in the day and, and people would, you know, they look at you a certain way. You're brutish, you're uh, unintelligent, like all the things or whatever. Um, but man, the one dude that was the loudest proponent of all that. Yeah. Like when he's getting beat up by three dudes down the street and I'm walking home from work, he was happy as hell to see me. You I know what I mean? Was. Cause I'm the dude yep. that could take care of the situation and did. Right. And, right. and, and I would rather be that guy that's kind of looked askance by people that are like that. than be a guy that is uh, impotent to be able to be useful to the, the people around me. Cause I can't yep. stand by and watch that. It's just not in me. Yeah. For and sure. I think man. the biggest thing too about safety, you know, and safety of kids I just ran into a, you know, I was at the gym earlier and um, ran into this girl I hadn't seen in a long time. And, um, and she starts talking and she's got, a, she's got a voice of a little girl, right? And she's a woman, right? And generally that's when people have been hurt by somebody when they were that age and something horrible has happened, right? And then, you know, you know about people's relationships as they go on and they're, treated in a way that maybe isn't the best way throughout, throughout the rest of their relationships. Cause they're imprinted with this garbage early on. Right. Right. And, and I think that's the biggest thing is like where safety start is making people feel like they're loved and that they're yeah. safe and making them that way. And I think that's the yeah. beginning part because otherwise, why would I defend myself? Right. right. And, and I know men that, I mean, I've one of my best friends that uh, helped me in my life so much is talking to today. And, and he's like, Man, it's just easy, you know, and he, he's at the end of a career and all these things and he's, he's 54 and he's like, why would I go on and this and that? I go, cause the, th the why you don't want to is cause you haven't, you haven't been paying attention to wanting to build a life that you want to defend. If you don't, yeah. if, I mean, it's on you to build a life that you think is awesome. Cause after the job ends or after the whatever ends, what's left, you know? And, and it's not just like, oh, I just go and do X, Y, or Z. It's like, it's gotta be kind of intentional. Or else right. you can get lost in the, in the depression and sadness of life all the time. I mean, people often, why do kids get leukemia? Why is there sex trafficking? Why is there earthquakes? Why, if there's a God, why all this? We don't deserve all that. And, well, we don't deserve sunsets and kisses from puppies and, and, and true love. And we don't deserve any of it. It's just life is what it is. And so I think the thing is, is like, how do we make us as a people most resilient and competent to answer the call? Because you can't make them safe. There's no nerfing the world. But you can make people able and you can make them useful. And um, and I think that's the call for us. I think that's 
that's what to do. You know, I think that's why your podcast, I think that's why podcasts in general are important because you get this, um, you know, an ulterior view to what is just out yeah. there in mainstream getting pumped down your neck all the time, whether it's through advertisements for cars or for whatever. I mean, it's right. the strangest kind of thing that we're in where they can subvert your whole mind just with, with media. Like it's never Absolutely. been. And that's the thing. If you're born into it, you don't know that. Right, because it's, it's never not been that for us. It's like this is we're like, whoa, like, what's man! Going like, on? why are there so many flashy lights on this right? commercial? Like, I see what you're trying to do. Like, pump Wild. the brakes, you know? It's why yeah. it's to sell you drugs, right? I mean, ever since yep. big pharma started, and like they don't let any other country in the world sell drugs on TV like they do in America, right? Absolutely. And then it's here's the thing, and we give you the list. Here's the caveat: we're going to sell you this pill, but it'll give you all this other things and maybe death. And we say it so fast that it, you're just numb to it. And like, right. it's an insanity that we're in as if we're not able to find our own health, you know, and nobody yeah. looks towards that. Nobody, yeah. nobody's talking about that in mainstream media. You've got to go to these kinds of venues to find out. You've got to listen to Joe Rogan or, or, uh, right. you know, Peter Thiel or, or uh, Tim Ferriss or something to go, here's a way how to hijack your life away from, you know, you got to pirate your life back. You got to rip it right. away from consumers or yeah. from a consumer way from these advertisers because they're stealing our attention everywhere they go. And then they're right. formulating our ideas in that, which is right. weird. It's going to get so weird, I think, with AI and all. It's going to get Listen, really fun. Yeah, weird. man. I mean, I I will say this. Maybe, maybe. Look, I am not a no technology guy, but one thing I'm really excited for is augmented reality. I don't care about VR, but if I'm put on some glasses and see fucking Pokemon jumping around everywhere, like I'm actually kind of stoked for that. Like, um, I think it'll be fun. Right now. It's going to devolve into fucking advertisements, you know, Not only but, that, but it devolves into propaganda right away. I mean, yeah. the very first film ever made, I'm in the film business. It's like basically yeah. you work for the CIA as a propaganda machine. If you're in Hollywood, right. It's just what it is. Right. And you think about VR goggles, you think about now I have your hundred percent full attention. Right. I can put subliminal, I could do whatever I want. That's a fact. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's and so, and it, yeah. and it looks fun. It looks like a game. Yeah. You know, right now people are bitching, right? In my business, writers and actors and directors and all that. Mm -hmm. and they're saying, you know, these are what the studios are doing is horrible and they're not treating us right and et cetera, et cetera. But I bet 80% of those people still are paying for all their streaming services. It's like we're caught into a place where it's so comfortable. We don't want to take our comforts away. So we will pay for our own enslavement. We will fund our own enslavement against Absolutely, the devils. Man that we are striking against. It's insane. It really is. And that's I mean, the way people are. Yeah. That's why I think, I think podcasts are so good because like, you know, there is no budget for the rising sun podcast, right? Except right. for what's out of my wallet. And so, um, it does two things. I think whatever the size of your audience is, you know, my audience, they get to hear from you. Right. But the other thing that it does is it allows people like you and I to flesh out these ideas, yeah. right? Because, you know, it's rare that you sit down and have a conversation like this with someone that's not in your immediate circle. Mm -hmm. Like I may have this conversation with my wife. I may have a long form conversation with a friend of mine that works with me. Um, but the ability to have like these kind of conversations with people that are outside of our immediate circle and totally. flesh out these ideas. I think that's one of the most important things about, about this venue. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's what used to be about America. 
in, in yeah. as much as like, you know, if you're a union guy working for United Auto Workers or something like that, you got a certain viewpoint of what's important in the government and this and that. But then if you if you talk to a, an artist or an engineer or something, you might go, ooh, they got really good reasons for not being it. Oh, okay. And so then you get to see like, well, what's best for the common good of everybody? What's what's right. the best course to take? And that kind of nuance is nearly erased as far as I can see. Um except in venues in, in avenues like this. You know, we don't have those discussions where we can allow every you know, where where maybe everybody can have different ideas, but nobody has to be wrong. You know, right. every, everybody just has their perspective of why they and nobody's wrong. It's just I could totally see why you would think that. But also this, both things can be true even if they look oppositional. But most people are, you know, I mean, we lose the nuance of of language, we lose the nuance of, of critical thinking when we are so polarized, which is what's been happening. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see, man. Hey, so your fighting career, walk me through that, Tate. So I, I'm, a, I'm kind of familiar, but um, not as familiar as I probably should be. I don't do a lot of homework for these. Just sure. sorry, guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, I want to learn. I want to learn from you rather than reading it on the fucking internet. Yeah, I don't know uh, what the internet says. I got into fighting as uh, because I wanted to have. Uh, I wanted to see what was what. I, I I wanted to see under these conditions who are you, who shows up. And so yeah. the first guy that really got me into any kind of organized fighting, and I thought I was tough, right? I yeah. I, I, I swear I did, and. Uh, <laughs> And I've been places, I've been locked up, I've been, you know, I've been through it. And I, I thought I was tougher than the average bear. Um, and then the first guy I met that showed me that I wasn't very tough was about 150 pounds. His name was Alberto Crane. And he was a, a brown belt in jiu-jitsu at the time. And he'd just come back from Bella's Ranch, Brazil. He won a state championship down there. He was a real fierce competitive athlete. And he was little and yeah. he arm barred me the same arm five times in under a minute or something like that. And right. I was, I don't know, 260 at the time I was on top of him. I, like there's nothing that made sense <laughs> about it to me. How, yeah. Whoa. Like, and I didn't even know I was in trouble the first couple of times. Yeah. Right. And, that, and, and so that got me super interested and I go, I got to find out more. You know, you can do two things at that point. You can go rolling around on the floor with a guy that's gay, whatever. I'm out of here. <laughs> And, or you can go, I got to know more. I'm curious about this, right? Like, how's yeah. this happen? And so thank God I went that route. I was always kind of open-minded and curious. And um, Right. So I looked into that. And the place we were rolling was a, a guy named Arlen Sanford. Uh, he had a, like a garage that was um, was all contained, no windows. And uh, so in the winter, we had a wood stove in there. It would suck all the oxygen out of there. So we're already 7,000 <laughs> feet in the air. And it's, I mean, you're, it's a battle to breathe and, um, yeah. and Adobe walls. So we're rolling and your feet against the wall, all the skins off the top of your foot. It's like, it was like those conditions and it was dope. And, uh, and so Arlen was a founding member of the dog brothers stick fighting crew. And, yeah. uh, they called him salty dog. And, um, and he trained me and my friend, Isaac Valley flag how to stick fight mainly because he wanted somebody to stick fight. He loves stick fighting and <laughs> it's hard to get people to buy into something like that, like getting yeah. whacked with a stick. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we, we trained with him uh, nonstop. And, and as that grew, I, I became a real fierce competitive jujitsu athlete, submission wrestling. I would go to every tournament, um, met Greg Jackson back then. It's probably 98, 
ninety ninety eight, probably ninety seven, and mm. um, and you know that's when I first met Keith uh, Jardine, who is my partner in a coffee company now, and and yep. great movie writer and, and uh, director, just won a bunch of awards for a film that we put together a couple of years ago. Um, and so we were all just young and hungry and looking to see what it's like under these conditions. Who shows up? Who are you like this? Yep. And uh, and what's your skill set? And and we all kind of had a chip on. We want to put New Mexico on the map, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we would go to Grappler's Quest deep, fifty people deep, and we would uh, you know go take team medals and shit home. And and uh, there's big rivalries uh, back then, and you know, but everybody was there too. Uh, Marvin Eastman's there, Chuck Liddell, like everybody. Frank Mir was a blue belt at the time. Like we we yeah. fought in tournaments against each other. Like it was all of that. And right. uh, it was a magical time in that way. BJ Penn and his brother JD Penn, and, yeah. um, you know, all, there's everybody a who's who of, of champions of today, um, I love it. of heroes, really of legends, and yeah. uh, and so that that's kind of where I started. And then cage fighting came up because the UFC was kind of dark for a few years in the late '90s, mm-hmm. early 2000s. Um, SEG was the company that owned it; they went out of business, and uh, and Dana White was a, a amateur boxer and a promoter that then became an agent or manager for Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell. Right. So he uh, wrote their first contracts against the UFC. And so they had the best contracts going, those two guys that hated each other. And and then Dana talked in down the road, like a couple years later, talked to Fertitta brothers who are like born billionaires that own the frontier casinos and all that. And like, Oh, to Zuffa. If Zuffa is this Zuffa, big, yeah. uh, yep. the UFC is like this big. It was uh, just the smidgen of it, right? It was like not their yep. thing. And Dana just turned that thing into the billion dollar industry that it is and, and is really a phenomenal. He's phenomenal in that way. Um, yep. And gave a lot of guys a chance for, to showcase their stuff when he brought the Spike show on TV. Spike was, a you know, you think about startup companies, Spike was a startup television channel. Absolutely. And, um, and so, because nobody else is going to take a risk on the UFC, like there's, I mean, they you know, they uh, called it a blood sport. They called it human cockfighting. Um, Budweiser had a big campaign against it. They hated it um, yeah. because and it was going into boxing because they were the, the main sponsor for WBO and NBA boxing. And yep. um, so anyway, there's, there's all that. But inside of that, we were fighting on reservations out here all the time because you could fight on reservations. And so right. we would go to all these different fights, and that's where we all cut our teeth. You know, Diego, Carlos Condit, uh, everybody, uh, all of us. Alberto Crane, also the guy that armbarred me a bunch of times. Um, yeah. He fought Javi Vasquez, won a, won a title for King of the Cage back then. But I just – it was like uh, – for me, it was an expression of like, who are you under these conditions? You know, you got people in the room. Your mom is here. You, you got guys that are dying for you to lose, that hate you. There's people yeah. that are students that need you to win that are teammates of yours. There's, there's all of it. And can you perform under these conditions? Who are you now? What's your discipline like? You know, it's like, I was just listening to a friend of mine, a native guy, and he was talking about when he was a kid and they do sweat lodges and, um, and that his dad was a, a, you know, kind of a brutal dude. And like, it's a disciplinarian. And he's like, says, I remember my uncle was like, Oh my God, I can't breathe. I got to get out. He goes, yes, you can. And, and he wouldn't let him out. And he just puts more steam on the fire. Right. And, and the thing is, is how to control yourself. Can you hold your yeah. mind underneath, you know, dark and uncomfortable positions? And I think there's a huge asset in that, you know, and there's a part of it that looks like torture, 
And but like I, I was a willing participant in that torture. I mean, I think guys that go into a lot a lot of work like you're doing, like there's guys that understand the asset in that, and they go, I want to see who I am under this. I want to be in the fiercest kind of positions and see if I I don't want to break. I'm not going to break no matter what kind of force gets. And and there's a certain guy that's like that, and that's just kind of where I was. And uh, that's kind of so that's kind of what fighting huh? was like for me. Um, and then you know in those days it's like you had to. It was hard to find a fight, and then guys would back out of a fight. I remember one fight I took. It was a two hundred five fight, and that, and that's part of the fight is the weight cut. And this guy was like, "Yeah, I'll be there at two hundred five. And and I looked him up on the internet like two weeks before, and I was like, "He just fought at two seventy five a month ago." And, um, <laughs> and it was like that, right? And, he, and the promoters like, "No, no, it'll be fine," because promoters are kind of dirtbags, you know, mostly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he said, "It'll be fine." And, he said he's he's uh, two thirty now and he's and he's cutting up. Anyway, the guy comes in at two fifty or something like the week before the fight. I go, there's no way he's gonna do. He goes, well, what are you gonna do? I go, we're in my hometown. I'm gonna fight it, you know. And, and uh, yeah. I, I don't care what it is, and I'll stop cutting weight. I was you know two thirteen or something by the time I stopped cutting weight, and uh, and he's two two hundred and I don't know forty pounds or something, and, and yeah. whatever. And, and you know I triangled him and, and finished him in, in the second yeah. round, I think. <laughs> but um. <laughs> It was like that. It was like it was like you know old west gunsling days, and and um, right. So there's there's all that, and then I ended up on the uh, the Ultimate Fighter on uh, I think the third season. We all tried out for the second season. Keith and Rashad went there. It was the heavyweight season, and then I went on the light heavyweight. Mike mm -hmm. Bisping won that season. Um, and during that, I was like, the only people that last in this are uh, the ring girls and the referees. <laughs> and like, and I'm, I'm seeing this rapid turnover of careers, yeah. right? And yeah. I, turned, I turned 35 when I was in the Ultimate Fighter House, which I was just trying, you know, I was like at a late age, I guess, maybe four, but like I wanted to be able to do my thing, you know what I mean? And um, and so I ran after that for a while. And uh, and then, you know, uh, you, you just age out of the thing and then you go, okay, right. who are you now? And I started teaching and I had a school after that and I still, it still runs. I got a 10th planet school here in Santa Fe, um, oh, nice. a, a CrossFit gym called Undisputed Fitness. And both those things still run. Friends of mine, one of my black belts runs the jujitsu and Muay Thai. It's a Bang Ludwig uh, Muay Thai gym. And, um, and it's dope to have that as part of my legacy now, you know, in that way. And mm -hmm. I'm real proud that I was able to leave something that was lasting and meaningful to people that were coming up because, you know, that's what the dudes that helped me told me to do. They said, you know, you get get as good as you can, man. Be as healthy as you can. Curate yourself intellectually, emotionally, physically, and spiritually to the best of your ability so that you can give something behind to people coming. Yeah. And, um, and those are the footprints I try to be conscious of and, and try to leave in the best way I can, you know. Uh, I do. Me, so that was, so, kind of the fight. That, that was kind of my yeah. fight thing. Yeah. So I, I, I kind of want to key on something you just said, man, like, I've noticed that recently and it's, you know, I won't name any names, but I've just heard a lot of like talking heads and, and people that, have, that others listen to a lot and have a lot of respect for that kind of shit on legacy. And for me, man, like, I think if you look at legacy as this selfish pursuit, then yeah, maybe it's not that important. Right. But if you oh, look like at I want to have my name on the building type thing. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. And I think some people have this misnomer about, or this mis interpretation of what legacy is and no legacy is like what did i do to serve that is lasting whether or not my name is attached to it that's that's, right. that's not the point of legacy 
Right. I, I, I really think deeply about this a lot because of all the people that I've led. And, and so I, I just, I appreciate the fact that you talk about what your legacy was because I think that a lot of people shit on it these days. And I think it's super important. I think you have to think about what your legacy is. If you're going to do anything truly worthwhile, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I think part of that, you know, is like, like Eddie Bravo started 10th planet jujitsu and he didn't put his name on it. He, he made 10th planet jujitsu. You know what I mean? And because it wasn't right. about Eddie and, and he knew that it couldn't be about him because it had to be bigger than that. And right. uh, I think inside of that, you know, there's a bunch of people, I'm part of this outfit where there's, there's a bunch of folks, nobody's ever going to know their names. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a half dozen of us or something to get, get together and that have been around for, you know, some decades. And we know the shoulders of giants that we stand on and we say their names right. and right. it matters. Right. It brings me to tears to think about it. You know what I mean? And I think that's the thing. You know, there's a dude a long time ago and he was interviewing me and he he says, oh, not, you know, you're a success. So what do you think about that? I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I go, what, what's that mean? Like, I don't know that I'm a success. Like, what? Like we've got to define that if we're going to talk about it. And he goes, well, what do you think success means? And I thought about it for a minute. And I just I figured, like, I think it means that it, when I wasn't a very good bet, those people that, that, that helped me out, that they feel like they, they did a good job, that it was time well spent. You know what I mean? That they didn't waste their time. That's what I would like to think. I would like to think that those guys that helped me, those people that showed me that kind of kindness didn't waste their time. And have I, have I carried their kindness in a, in a way that is uh, admirable and honorable? And, and that's what I would think. And, and, and I think it's more like that. It's a personal thing. You know, I know a lot of folks want accolades and attaboys and go, look what I did. Oh, I'm just showing people what I did so they could show them how to do it. Too. Man, it's the internet. People know how to do stuff. People know how to, you know, go ahead and walk that walk. And 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 uh, and the demonstration of your principles in your walk will be a lot more important than whatever your palaver is about what you're doing or, or how important right. it is. You know, my thing with that gym, man, um, you know, I had a couple hundred people that are coming through there a day. And I was moving away. I was, uh, you know, everything I'd done, I, you know, I'm, I'm bouncing so that I can feed my fight career, right? Because that's not paying anything. And so I'm bouncing so I can get good at this thing. And then when I get good enough at that thing, and, and then that thing is like intermittent, I'm doing bodyguard work so that I can get through that part of my life. And then I start this gym and then I'm still doing bodyguard work, which I loathed at that time to be able to pay the bills and turn the lights on and to be able to build a cage and put mats up and buy weights and like, and I'm funding it like that. And then, you know, it's all been kind of labors of love in that way. And, and so right. when I started moving away because I started working in the film business and I'm gone a lot. And, and so like I had to build a team of coaches that could carry the weight and that had a desire to. And inside of that is like, uh, when I go, fuck, I got to, I got to, I'm not here anymore to, to do this. All I wanted to know was that I had good people in place that those folks that were coming and showing up for that 10 years that they've been coming still had a place to go. That's all. Right. I don't, I don't give a fuck what it's called. You know what I mean? It's like, I just want to yep. know that, that my people are getting serviced and that, that that's the right thing. That's the way I think, you know, I'm not standing that, you know, if we're all on a river floating down and those are docks that are back here. I'm not, I'm not servicing that dock anymore. I'm, I'm not the one that, that wouldn't be healthy. And I think in this life, you got to let things go and change and alter. And then they can grow into somebody else's glory. Thank God. You know, I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. So how'd you find yourself, um, 
in the film in the film business, man. Did did you start out with stunts or like I don't maybe I read that somewhere. I don't I don't fucking know, man. Is that I mean that could or? be a story. That that you can make that into a true story. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean you could. I mean it's like there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So a lot of people look at it and they go, Oh, he was just uh in this big show and then he you know, so that means that um this just happened, you know, if people just see a thing that just happened, they're like, Man, how fortunate for you that you just all of a sudden got a SAG award or whatever, you know. And yeah. so the way it happened I, for me, and it happens. I'm not that guy, trust me. No, 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 me. no. But like, I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, we look at things from outside and we're not sure, sure, you know. I was working at a nightclub and um, and I had just started doing jujitsu. I was doing stick fights then and I'm working at the nightclub and I'm training every day. And Master P and all his guys walk in. Master P oh, from No sure. Limit Soldiers. Yeah. Uh, no limit records and uh, no limit films and yeah. so we got a prison out here in new mexico that's uh they had big riot at famous riot there's a great book called the devil's butcher shop that's about that riot which is okay fucking awesome um yeah but that's it's empty it's a haunted prison now right and you can still see the marks in the floor where they took shovels to behead people and uh, oh, and, and all, all it's all it's all that right there's dudes, yeah. I knew a dude that was locked up there. He was doing 20 years. And, and he says, you'd see guys and they'd be, they'd have a head on a broomstick and they'd be walking through the catacombs underneath that were all flooded out, soaked in blood, the whole thing. It was like that. The National Guard came out the second day and they're like, you guys got to stop this. And they brought a head out in a bag and dumped it on them. There's our negotiation. They go, holy shit, we need the FBI. We need somebody to sleep with. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're, this is above our, you know, anyways. So that prison is where they were doing a film. And, uh, and me and a couple of my friends went out and tried out for that. So that's where I got a SAG card. And a SAG card is what allows you to participate as an actor or a stunt right. person yep. in a film. And so yep. I got this job as an actor on the film for the month. And I played a character called Snaz. And uh, <laughs> and and I, we did some fights. And we, you know, did a little fall off of, uh, off of uh, the third tier of the, uh, you know, of the prison uh, cell. And... Um, and the dude that was running it, he goes, hey, man, you know, you move great and you're fucking you should come out to L.A., dude. And this is like in 2000. He says, you should come out. I got a guest house and you can come stay with me. And I go, bro, that's fucking I'm going to kid from Michigan. <laughs> I'm fucking work. I only got to work one job. Everybody else is working two, three jobs in Santa Fe to make it work. I got this one job. Yep. And I'm doing this fighting thing. I like thanks for the pipe dream, but I'm just going to chill. I'm good. And uh, and we left each other's lives and whatever. And I was like, well, oh, what a cool experience, you know. Yeah. Never thought about it again. I, I went down a whole nother road uh, as an athlete. And um, and then at that bodyguard, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm running the gym and I'm doing, you know, I'm doing all the things trying to keep it all going. I've retired from fighting in, I don't know, 2009 or 10. And yeah. uh, a guy walks into my gym that's an X Games athlete. And uh, he's a badass athlete. He moved great, wanted to learn jujitsu. He's a big guy, so he's a lot of fun to roll with. So we spent, I spent a lot of time with him. After about yeah. two weeks, he goes, I already had a SAG card. And I go, oh, yeah. You know, a while ago, I worked on this film. You know, I told him about it. And he goes, uh, and he was a member of a group called Brand X Stunts. And Brand X is about 35 guys, uh, maybe 40 guys now. And real high-level uh, stunt crew. Like, they do yeah. all the best movies. And, and um, Anyway, very highly regarded, respected guys. And he goes, well, that's that, that guy that ran that, he's one of the guys in my group. And I go, oh, you're in films too. He goes, yeah, man. Uh, and they were shooting a film called Paul about uh, Simon Pegg film about a little alien that's getting drug across the Southwest in a motorhome. 
And he goes, well, you want to come? I got a couple parts on here. You could probably play. There's a fight in a, in a saloon. And then we got some tactical yeah. shit. If you can use guns, I go, yeah, I can use guns. And so uh, I, I worked for him and his name was Darren Prescott. And so that, that's the way that I kind of go, Oh man, maybe this is a thing I could do after fighting. You know, the door, the room got dark after I'm done fighting and I'm doing this bodyguard work, trying to make this gym work. It's all hard. You know, yeah. I got a high standard, which is expensive. And so I'm trying to run after the costs and all that shit. And, uh, and he goes, Hey, why don't you come out to Detroit and, and work on Red Dawn with me? So then I went out to Red Dawn and I go, God, this could be really real. Maybe this could be a real life for me. Yeah. So I just started kind of running after stunt work at that time. And me being me, um, they go, you know, you're hard to hide. And so we'll go ahead and uh, <laughs> yeah. you're going to probably be a character, right? And so then yeah. I just became, you know, like their idea of like, who's the baddest dude that our main character could fight at the end? Like who is, right. and I kind of became yeah. that character in a lot of these different films that came out yep. then, and one after the next. And I get this job on Equalizer and uh, I go out to Boston and I'm out there and the guy running the show, I know it, but he doesn't know it. He's the same guy from Lockdown. 12 years before or whatever. Oh shit. And, uh, and so we're sitting having a hamburger at the bar later after the first day of work. And I meet Antoine Fuqua and shit. And I was just like, this is crazy. You know, it's like everything in my yeah. life about the film work. I'm like, Oh my God. You know, I, I mean, I've just been a wide eyed kid about it. like breaking bad, yeah. like all this shit it was, it was beyond me. And I go, you know, you're the guy that gave me my sad card back in the day. And he goes, what? And I go, this show lockdown. He goes, oh my God. And so, and then me and Keith, Keith Willard's his name. And, and, uh, yeah. we've been great friends ever since. And, um, and that's kind of how the film business was, was like this, you know, it's kind of like you're the strippers of the film business in the stunt world. It, yeah. It's just like who, you know, all this brotherhood and, and, and pull people up and, and grab them. And if they're useful here, you can throw them in this spot and all that. And so, I'd get, you know, little spots here and there. And that's kind of how it, it kind of grew for me. And, and it's, you know, everybody, you know, everybody says, well, how can I get in the film, in, in the film business?